Chapter 15 of The Mystery of 31 New Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. The Mystery of 31 New Inn by R. Austin Freeman. Chapter 15 Thorndyke Explodes the Mine. We had not been back in our chambers more than a few minutes when the little brass knocker on the inner door rattled out its summons. Thorndyke himself opened the door, and finding our three expected visitors on the threshold, he admitted them and closed the oak. "'We have accepted your invitation, you see,' said Marchmont, whose manner was now a little flurried and uneasy. "'This is my partner, Mr. Winwood. You haven't met before, I think.' Well, we thought we should like to hear some further particulars from you, as we could not quite understand your letter. My conclusion, I suppose, said Thorndyke, was a little unexpected. It was more than that, sir, exclaimed Winwood. It was absolutely irreconcilable, either with the facts of the case or with common physical possibilities. At the first glance, Thorndyke agreed, it would probably have that appearance. It has that appearance still to me, said Winwood, growing suddenly red and wrathful, and I may say that I speak as a solicitor who was practicing in the law when you were an infant in arms. You tell us, sir, that this will is a forgery, this will which was executed in broad daylight in the presence of two unimpeachable witnesses who have sworn not only to their signatures and the contents of the document, but to their very finger marks on the paper. Are those finger marks forgeries too? Have you examined and tested them? I have not, replied Thorndyke. The fact is they are of no interest to me, as I am not disputing the witnesses' signatures. At this Mr. Winwood fairly danced with irritation. Marchmont, he exclaimed fiercely, you know this good gentleman, I believe. Tell me, is he addicted to practical jokes? Now, my dear Winwood, groaned Marchmont, I pray you, I beg you to control yourself, no doubt. But confound it, roared Winwood, you have yourself heard him say that the will is a forgery, but that he doesn't dispute the signatures, which, concluded Winwood, banging his fist down on the table, is damned nonsense. May I suggest, interposed Stephen Blackmore, that we came here to receive Dr. Thorndyke's explanation of his letter. Perhaps it would be better to postpone any comments until we have heard it. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, said Marchmont. Let me entreat you, Winwood, to listen patiently and refrain from interruption until we have heard our learned friend's exposition of the case. Oh, very well, Winwood replied sulkily. I'll say no more. He sank into a chair with the manner of a man who shuts himself up and turns the key, and so remained excepting when the internal pressure approached bursting point, throughout the subsequent proceedings silent, stony, and impassive, like a seated statue of obstinacy. I take it, said Marchmont, that you have some new facts that are not in our possession. Yes, replied Thorndyke, we have some new facts, and we have made some new use of the old ones. But how shall I lay the case before you? Shall I state my theory of the sequence of events and furnish the verification afterwards, or shall I retrace the actual course of my investigations and give you the facts in the order in which I obtained them myself, with the inferences from them? 
i almost think said mr marchmont that it would be better if you would put us in possession of the new facts then if the conclusions that follow from them are not sufficiently obvious we could hear the argument what do you say winwood mr winwood roused himself for an instant barked out the one word facts and shut himself up again with a snap you would like to have the new facts by themselves said thorndyke if you please the facts only in the first place at any rate very well said thorndyke and here i caught his eye with a mischievous twinkle in it that i understood perfectly for i had most of the facts myself and realized how much these two lawyers were likely to extract from them winwood was going to have a run for his money as thorndyke had promised my colleague having placed on the table by his side a small cardboard box and the sheets of notes from his file glanced quickly at mr winwood and began the first important new facts came into my possession on the day on which you introduced the case to me in the evening after you left i availed myself of mr stephen's kind invitation to look over his uncle's chambers at new inn i wished to do so in order to ascertain if possible what had been the habits of the deceased during his residence there when i arrived with dr jervis mr stephen was in the chambers and i learned from him that his uncle was an oriental scholar of some position and that he had a very thorough acquaintance with the cuneiform writing now while i was talking with mr stephen i made a very curious discovery on the wall over the fireplace hung a large framed photograph of an ancient persian inscription in the cuneiform character and that photograph was upside down upside down exclaimed stephen but that is really very odd very odd indeed agreed thorndyke and very suggestive the way in which it came to be inverted is pretty obvious and also rather suggestive the photograph had evidently been in the frame some years but had apparently never been hung up before it had not said stephen though i don't know how you arrived at the fact it used to stand on the mantelpiece in his old rooms in jermyn street well continued thorndyke the frame maker had pasted his label on the back of the frame and as this label hung the right way up it appeared as if the person who fixed the photograph on the wall had adopted it as a guide it is very extraordinary said stephen i should have thought the person who hung it would have asked uncle jeffrey which was the right way up and i can't imagine how on earth it could have hung all those months without his noticing it he must have been practically blind here marchmont who had been thinking hard with knitted brows suddenly brightened up i see your point said he you mean that if jeffrey was as blind as that it would have been possible for some person to substitute a false will which he might sign without noticing the substitution that wouldn't make the will a forgery growled winwood if jeffrey signed it it was jeffrey's will you could contest it if you could prove the fraud but he said this is my will and the two witnesses read it and have identified it did they read it aloud asked stephen no they did not replied thorndyke can you prove substitution asked marchmont i haven't asserted it answered thorndyke my position is that the will is a forgery but it is not said winwood we won't argue it now said thorndyke i ask you to note the fact that the inscription was upside down 
i also observed on the walls of the chamber some valuable japanese color prints on which were recent damp spots i noted that the sitting-room had a gas stove and that the kitchen contained practically no stores or remains of food and hardly any traces of even the simplest cooking in the bedroom i found a large box that had contained a considerable stock of hard stearine candles six to the pound and that was now nearly empty i examined the clothing of the deceased on the soles of the boots i observed dried mud which was unlike that on my own and jervis's boots from the gravelly square of the inn i noted a crease on each leg of the deceased man's trousers as if they had been turned up halfway to the knee and in the waistcoat pocket i found the stump of a contango pencil on the floor of the bedroom i found a portion of an oval glass somewhat like that of a watch or locket but ground at the edge to a double bevel dr jervis and i also found one or two beads and a bugle all of dark brown glass here thorndyke paused and marchmont who had been gazing at him with growing amazement said nervously er yes very interesting these observations of yours are are all the observations that i made at new inn the two lawyers looked at one another and stephen blackmore stared fixedly at a spot on the hearth rug then mr winwood's face contorted itself into a sour lopsided smile you might have observed a good many other things sir said he if you had looked if you had examined the doors you would have noted that they had hinges and were covered with paint and if you had looked up the chimney you might have noted that it was black inside now now winwood protested marchmont in an agony of uneasiness as to what his partner might say next i must really beg you er to refrain from what mr winwood means dr thorndyke is that er we do not quite perceive the relevancy of these uh observations of yours probably not said thorndyke but you will perceive their relevancy later for the present i will ask you to note the facts and bear them in mind so that you may be able to follow the argument when we come to that the next set of data i acquired on the same evening when dr jervis gave me a detailed account of a very strange adventure that befell him i need not burden you with all the details but i will give you the substance of his story he then proceeded to recount the incidents connected with my visits to mr graves dwelling on the personal peculiarities of the parties concerned and especially of the patient and not even forgetting the very singular spectacles worn by mr weiss he also explained briefly the construction of the chart presenting the latter for the inspection of his hearers to this recital our three visitors listened in utter bewilderment as indeed did i also for i could not conceive in what way my adventures could possibly be related to the affairs of the late mr blackmore this was manifestly the view taken by mr marchmont for during a pause in which the chart was handed to him he remarked somewhat stiffly i am assuming dr thorndyke that the curious story you are telling us has some relevance to the matter in which we are interested you are quite correct in your assumption replied thorndyke the story is very relevant indeed as you will presently be convinced 
thank you said marchmont sinking back once more into his chair with a sigh of resignation a few days ago pursued thorndyke dr jervis and i located with the aid of this chart the house to which he had been called we found that the late tenant had left somewhat hurriedly and that the house was to let and as no other kind of investigation was possible we obtained the keys and made an exploration of the premises here he gave a brief account of our visit and the conditions that we observed and was proceeding to furnish a list of the articles that we had found under the grate when mr winwood started from his chair really sir he exclaimed this is too much have i come here at great personal inconvenience to hear you read the inventory of a dust heap thorndyke smiled benevolently and caught my eye once more with a gleam of amusement sit down mr winwood he said quietly you came here to learn the facts of the case and i am giving them to you please don't interrupt needlessly and waste time winwood stared at him ferociously for several seconds then somewhat disconcerted by the unruffled calm of his manner he uttered a snort of defiance sat down heavily and shut himself up again we will now thorndyke continued with unmoved serenity consider these relics in more detail and we will begin with this pair of spectacles they belong to a person who was near-sighted and astigmatic in the left eye and almost certainly blind in the right such a description agrees entirely with dr jervis's account of the sick man he paused for the moment and then as no one made any comment proceeded we next come to these little pieces of reed which you mr stephen will probably recognize as the remains of a japanese brush such as is used for writing in chinese ink or for making small drawings again he paused as though expecting some remark from his listeners but no one spoke and he continued then there is this bottle with the theatrical wig-maker's label on it which once contained cement such as is used for fixing on false beards moustaches or eyebrows he paused once more and looked round expectantly at his audience none of whom however volunteered any remark do none of these objects that i have described and shown you seem to have any significance for us he asked in a tone of some surprise they convey nothing to me said mr marchmont glancing at his partner who shook his head like a restive horse nor to you mr stephen no replied stephen under the existing circumstances they convey no reasonable suggestion to me thorndyke hesitated as if he were half inclined to say something more then with a slight shrug he turned over his notes and resumed the next group of new facts is concerned with the signatures of the recent checks we have photographed them and placed them together for the purpose of comparison and analysis i am not prepared to question the signatures said winwood we have had a highly expert opinion which would override ours in a court of law even if we differed from it which i think we do not yes said marchmont that is so i think we must accept the signatures especially as that of the will has been proved beyond any question to be authentic very well agreed thorndyke we will pass over the signatures then we have some further evidence in regard to the spectacles 
which serves to verify our conclusions respecting them. Perhaps, said Marchmont, we might pass over that too, as we do not seem to have reached any conclusions. As you please, said Thorndyke. It is important, but we can reserve it for verification. The next item will interest you more, I think. It is the signed and witnessed statement of Samuel Wilkins, the driver of the cab in which the deceased came home to the inn on the evening of his death. My colleague was right. An actual document signed by a tangible witness who could be put in the box and sworn brought both lawyers to a state of attention, and when Thorndyke read out the cabman's evidence, their attention soon quickened into undisguised astonishment. "'But this is a most mysterious affair,' exclaimed Marchmont. "'Who could this woman have been, and what could she have been doing in Jeffrey's chambers at this time? Can you throw any light on it, Mr. Stephen?' "'No, indeed, I can't,' replied Stephen. "'It is a complete mystery to me. My uncle Jeffrey was a confirmed old bachelor.' and although he did not dislike women, he was far from partial to their society, wrapped up as he was in his favorite studies. To the best of my belief, he had not a single female friend. He was not on intimate terms even with his sister, Mrs. Wilson. Very remarkable, mused Marchmont, most remarkable. But perhaps you can tell us, Dr. Thorndyke, who this woman was. I think, replied Thorndyke, that the next item of evidence will enable you to form an opinion for yourselves. I only obtained it yesterday, and as it made my case quite complete, I wrote off to you immediately. It is the statement of Joseph Ridley, another cabman, and unfortunately a rather dull, unobservant fellow, unlike Wilkins. He has not much to tell us, but what little he has is highly instructive. Here is the statement signed by the deponent and witnessed by me. Quote, My name is Joseph Ridley. I am the driver of a four-wheeled cab. On the 14th of March, the day of the great fog, I was waiting at Vauxhall Station, where I had just set down a fare. About five o'clock, a lady came and told me to drive over to Upper Kennington Lane to take up a passenger. She was a middle-sized woman. I could not tell what her age was or what she was like, because her head was wrapped up in a sort of knitted woolen veil to keep out the fog. I did not notice how she was dressed. She got into the cab, and I led the horse over to Upper Kennington Lane and a little way up the lane until the lady tapped at the front window for me to stop. She got out of the cab and told me to wait. Then she went away and disappeared in the fog. Presently a lady and gentleman came from the direction in which she had gone. The lady looked like the same lady, but I won't answer to that. Her head was wrapped up in the same kind of veil or shawl, and I noticed that she had on a dark-colored mantle with bead fringe on it. The gentleman was clean-shaved and wore spectacles, and he stooped a great deal. I can't say whether his sight was good or bad. He helped the lady into the cab, and told me to drive to the great northern station, King's Cross. Then he got in himself, and I drove off. I got to the station about a quarter to six, and the lady and gentleman got out. The gentleman paid my fare, and they both went into the station. I did not notice anything unusual about either of them directly after they had gone. I got a fresh fare and drove away. End quote. 
That, Thorndyke concluded, is Joseph Ridley's statement, and I think it will enable you to give a meaning to the other facts that I have offered for your consideration. I am not so sure about that, said Marchmont. It is all exceedingly mysterious. Your suggestion is, of course, that the woman who came to New Inn in the cab was Mrs. Shallybaum. Not at all, replied Thorndyke. My suggestion is that the woman was Geoffrey Blackmore. There was deathly silence for a few moments. We were all absolutely thunderstruck and sat gaping at Thorndyke in speechless astonishment. Then Mr. Woodward fairly bounced out of his chair. But, my good sir, he screeched, Geoffrey Blackmore was with her at the time? Naturally, replied Thorndyke. My suggestion implies that the person who was with her was not Geoffrey Blackmore. But he was, bawled Winwood, the porter saw him. The porter saw a person whom he believed to be Geoffrey Blackmore. I suggest that the porter's belief was erroneous. Well, snapped Winwood, perhaps you can prove that it was. I don't see how you are going to, but perhaps you can. He subsided once more into his chair and glared defiantly at Thorndyke. You seem, said Stephen, to suggest some connection between the sick man Graves and my uncle. I noted it at the time, but put it aside as impossible. Was I right? Did you mean to suggest any connection? I suggest something more than a connection. I suggest identity. My position is that the sick man Graves was your uncle. From Dr. Jervis's description, said Stephen, this man must have been very like my uncle, both were blind in the right eye and had very poor vision with the left, and my uncle certainly used brushes of the kind that you have shown us when writing in the Japanese character, for I have watched him and admired his skill, but... But, said Marchmont, there is the insuperable objection that, at the very time when this man was lying sick in Kennington Lane, Mr. Jeffrey was living at New Inn. What evidence is there of that? asked Thorndyke. Evidence, Marchmont exclaimed impatiently, why, my dear sir, he paused suddenly, and leaning forward regarded Thorndyke with a new and rather startled expression. You mean to suggest, he began, I suggest that Geoffrey Blackmore never lived at New Inn at all. For the moment, Marchmont seemed absolutely paralyzed by astonishment. This is an amazing proposition, he exclaimed at length. Yet the thing is certainly not impossible, for now that you recall the fact, I realize that no one who had known him previously, excepting his brother John, ever saw him at the inn. The question of identity was never raised. Excepting, said Mr. Winwood, in regard to the body, which was certainly that of Geoffrey Blackmore. Yes, yes, of course, said Marchmont. I had forgotten that for the moment. The body was identified beyond doubt. You don't dispute the identity of the body, do you? Certainly not, replied Thorndyke. Here Mr. Winwood grasped his hair with both hands and stuck his elbows on his knees, while Marchmont drew forth a large handkerchief and mopped his forehead. Stephen Blackmore looked from one to the other expectantly and finally said, If I might make a suggestion, it would be that, as Dr. Thorndyke has shown us the pieces now of the puzzle, he should be so kind as to put them together for our information. Yes, agreed Marchmont, that will be the best plan. 
Let us have the argument, doctor, and any additional evidence that you possess. The argument, said Thorndyke, will be a rather long one, as the data are so numerous, and there are some points in verification on which I shall have to dwell in some detail. We will have some coffee to clear our brains, and then I will bespeak your patience for what may seem like a rather prolix demonstration. End of chapter 15. Recording by James O'Connor. Randolph, Massachusetts. February 2010.